The information and opinions presented in this ARC Energy Ideas podcast are provided for informational purposes only and are subject to the disclaimer link in the show notes. This is the ARC Energy Ideas podcast with Peter Tertzakian and Jackie Forrest, exploring trends that influence the energy business. Welcome to the ARC Energy Ideas podcast. I'm Jackie Forrest. And I'm Peter Tertzakian. So guess what? What? <laughs> so uh, I sort of looked at my calendar and last week I came downtown and had meetings in person three times. This week it's probably four times. Mask on and all, but I finally feel like we're getting to some sort of normalcy again. And it feels good. Yeah, it certainly does. And I was lucky enough to go to an in-person conference, my first yeah. one, the Canria conference in Toronto. I actually flew somewhere too. And I had a great time. And it just yeah. reminded me of how important that in-person interaction yeah, is. It really is. I've been to three, I think, in the last six weeks in-person conferences. And yeah, it makes a big difference. So Canria. Canria is the Canadian Renewable Energy Association. That's right. And we're really happy to invite Robert Hornung, president and CEO of the Canadian Renewable Energy Association, an industry association that represents companies in the solar, wind, and storage sectors within Canada. Welcome, Robert. Thank you very much. Hey, Robert. So why don't you start telling us a little bit about Canria, or the Canadian Renewable Energy Association, and how you came to lead it? Sure. Canria is a little over a year old. It was formed in July of 2020 through an amalgamation of the Canadian Wind Energy Association and the Canadian Solar Industries Association. And that came about because we recognized synergies between these technologies and how working together, they could provide a more comprehensive solution to the decarbonization and expansion of the electricity grid that we're going to need going forward. And so when the new association was formed, we adopted a new mandate to focus on wind, solar, and energy storage, because we believe that these three technologies working together will be at the heart of the transition we're going to see in the electricity sector going forward. And you had your first in-person conference in Toronto called Electricity Transformation Canada. Can you tell us a bit about it? Was it a difficult decision to go ahead with an in-person? And how do you think it turned out now that you look back at it? Uh, well, yes, it was certainly a challenging decision. There was a, a lot of risk and uncertainty around it. Our association has existed for essentially a year and a half now, and we've not brought everybody together. But once we made the plunge to go ahead, we said, let's do this, and we were very pleased with the results. We ended up having more than 1,300 people in attendance. We had a trade show with more than 100 exhibitors on the floor, and the overwhelming sentiment that you heard from everyone who was there was just so grateful for the opportunity to be able to get together and to meet face-to-face -face with people once again. And let's all hope that that's really just the beginning of a, a true transition to normal here going forward. So transition to normal and transition in energy. There's a vision statement or actually a report that you put out called Canria 2050 Vision, which I'm flipping through here. It was released at the conference. Why don't you tell us a little bit about what that vision is and what's in that report? Well, sure. What we wanted to do was, I mean, there's been a lot of discussion, obviously, about driven by climate science, about the need to move to net zero greenhouse gas emissions by 2050. And Canada has made that commitment, along with many other countries. And analysis has consistently shown that to reach that objective, you're going to have to decarbonize the electricity system and then expand it to allow that decarbonized electricity to be used to reduce greenhouse gas emissions in other sectors like transportation, buildings, and industry. And for our sector, that's particularly important because we know that 
the lowest cost sources of new generation available today, new decarbonized generation, are wind and solar. And so we believe these technologies are going to play a central role in this. And indeed, again, this has been reaffirmed by numerous studies. But what we wanted to do with this vision was try to say, well, what does that really mean? What's the sort of scale and speed that what we're talking about? And so we envisioned a scenario, again, informed by analysis that's been done by many, many people at this point, that looked and said, okay, we're going to assume to get to net zero by 2050, we need to double the size of the electricity grid, consistent with a lot of findings. We're going to assume that two-thirds of that new electricity is going to come from wind and solar because it is the lowest cost source of generation available. And what does that mean? That means that we need to expand wind and solar energy capacity in Canada tenfold over the next 30 years. We need to build out on an annual basis new wind and solar energy at a rate nine times faster than what we've seen over the last five years and carry that on for the next 30 years. So we really wanted to draw attention to, we call it a wake-up call, to signal that, hey, if we're really serious about getting to this net zero objective at the end of the day, we need to step up in a big way and we need to step up soon at a scale that's been unprecedented historically. So Robert, that eight-fold increase, that's pretty phenomenal. I went back and looked at the last five years. Although there's been some growth, it's been pretty small relative to the pace that we're talking about. What's holding back the growth? I mean, you talked about it already, that it, renewables, and I think it's well understood now, renewables are the cheapest source of generation. So it's not economics. Why aren't we growing at that pace today? It's not economics. In fact, over the last decade, more than half of the new electric generating capacity installed in Canada has been wind or solar. So people are choosing this because of its cost. But, you know, there's a couple of factors. One is demand. We don't see significant growth in demand for electricity at this point, and you're not going to produce new supply unless there's new demand. And that means we need more clarity on what that pathway to net zero looks like in terms of what is the timeline that we're taking to decarbonize the electricity grid. What does electrification truly look like? What are our strategies to move forward in that? To provide investors with the confidence that that demand is coming and therefore that they can invest in that new supply to bring it forward. There are also some interesting things about the Canadian market relative to other markets globally that have slowed in some ways renewable energy growth in Canada relative to other countries. One is that we have a very clean decarbonized electricity system in Canada relative to other countries. 80% of our electricity today is non-emitting. And therefore, there's not the same drive to decarbonize as we see in a country like the United States, which is much more heavily reliant on fossil fuels and electricity generation. Mm -hmm. We also know that around the world, we see growing demand for renewable energy from the corporate sector. Companies trying to offset either their climate and greenhouse gas emission reduction obligations to meet their own internal targets or pursuing ESG objectives or just trying to reduce the cost of electricity that they're paying for. And in Canada, we have one market where it's very easy for a corporation to sign an agreement with a renewable energy producer to get that energy, and that's in Alberta. In the rest of the country, it's much more complicated because of our vertically integrated utilities. And as a result, you see that demand moving more quickly in other countries like the United States and in the European countries. The one thing we know, again, is if we're serious about net zero, we're going to need significantly more electricity. And when that demand is there, we will turn to wind and solar because of its cost. Yeah, that's an interesting comment about the demand not growing, because I've looked at some of the charts, even here in the U.S., and yeah, it's relatively flat, attributable in part to gains in efficiency on the consumption side. And you need that demand growth signal 
to grow capacity upfront. But would you also say that it's that the substitution is not occurring? In other words, you bring on wind, solar plus storage, and that utilities are not retiring their legacy assets, which is, I argue, a big problem, and that substitution is not gelling either. You know, you mentioned the utilities, especially the ones that are, I'll call them uh, state-run, provincially-run utilities. Could you give us a sense of what's going through the minds of those utilities as they think about not only the lag demand growth, but the substitution of existing assets and displacement problem? Well, I think they're all, frankly, wrestling with that right now. And I think what you see is that's where policies that are being discussed right now, for example, in terms of a clean electricity standard that would require a decarbonized grid by 2035, a net zero electricity grid, is forcing utilities to fundamentally think about, hmm, okay, I have these assets now. In 2035, I'm not going to be able to utilize these assets. What does that transition pathway look like? And so I do think you're seeing, for example, in Canada, much less discussion today than you did, say, five years ago about building new natural gas plants in the light of decarbonization imperatives, carbon pricing, et cetera. Now there's more focus on what is that pathway going to be for existing natural gas plants and how do we manage a transition there? So I think these discussions are very much live and ongoing, but you're right you won't be adding the new renewables on until you've taken those decisions to bring other generation off in the short term. And in Alberta, one of the reasons that you see the significant growth in renewables, it's being driven by consumer or corporate demand, but it's also being driven by the fact that we see now we're on path to phase out coal completely in the province by 2023. So there are a number of factors here that can drive this going forward, but fundamentally it relies very heavily on clarity around policy direction, objectives, and signals, clarity and consistency in that regard. So, Robert, you mentioned the uh, zero emission electrical grid by 2035. I'm not sure if all of our audience knows that the Liberal government, before they were re-elected, put that in their election platform as a goal. Do you think this is going to be a top priority now that they're re-elected to actually make this a reality? Yeah, I do for a couple of reasons. The first thing is, I mean, as we all know, COP26 just ended in Glasgow. The Liberals reaffirmed this commitment in Glasgow. And in fact, signaled with the United States and the United Kingdom that the three countries all together would be moving to meet this objective. And at the end of the day, the Liberal government in going to Glasgow also indicated that it was going to adopt a more stringent target for greenhouse gas emission reductions in 2030, which is now listed as between 40 and 45% reductions from 2005 levels. And that decarbonization of the electricity grid can make a very important contribution towards those objectives. And again, you know, there's been a lot of work done. An organization called the Canadian Institute for Climate Choices has run 60 different scenarios for getting to net zero. And they say that decarbonizing the electricity grid and expanding that production of decarbonized electricity is central in all 60 of the scenarios. And therefore, they call it a safe bet, something that you should be investing in heavily now because you're going to need it no matter what the ultimate pathway to net zero actually turns out to be. And this commitment to decarbonize the grid by 2035 is going to be a very important signal and driver of investment in these decarbonized generation. So in a, I guess, challenge to that safe bet, we've got this specter of inflation that's starting to loom. We've got all sorts of inputs, polysilicon, steel, copper, silver, 
just read this morning, basically the world's inventory of aluminum is depleted except for one place, and that's Vietnam, where there's all sorts of other issues in getting the aluminum out. So we've got skyrocketing input costs. How are those high costs impacting the discussions around decision-making tables in terms of uh, spending money on this stuff? Well, it's interesting because I think you're absolutely right. That increase in input costs is going to increase costs, at least in the short term, for these technologies, although I think everyone agrees that the long-term trend is going to continue downward. But I think the key question is not so much the impact on wind and solar costs in isolation, but the impact on their costs relative to alternatives that you might pursue going forward. And I would argue that across the electricity industry, everyone is facing these sorts of challenges <laughs> in terms of the supply chain and increasing costs. And I'm not sure that the relative positioning of wind and solar is going to be changing very dramatically relative to other technologies. And if wind and solar continue to maintain their position as the lowest cost technologies, even in this context of inflation and everything else that we're dealing with right now, I think it will still be the technologies you end up looking to. Yeah, I generally agree with that as the position of wind and solar relative to other new installations. But if the competition is the installed base that can go along operating even with carbon taxes, I kind of get the sense that that's where the issue is in terms of this. Again, the decommissioning of old established infrastructure is potentially the biggest challenge in decarbonization. And uh, I'm just sort of making that as a statement, but I, I'm happy to have your thoughts. No, I think you're right. It's a bit of a different question there. You're absolutely right. And I guess I would say then you look at other factors that are playing in. So, for example, with existing generation, we also in the scenario where we're looking at increasing carbon costs going forward will have an impact there as well. I mean, there's a number of factors at play there. Again, if there's a requirement in place that we need to decarbonize the grid by a certain date, we're going to probably have to work very hard to find the lowest cost pathway to get there. But getting there will still force us to make some choices about existing generation. Now, in Canada, we have a pretty clean grid, as you said before. There isn't as much opportunity to substitute out because we have 80% already clean energy. But we do want to build more and we want more demand so that we can build more renewables. Now, one of the things that came up at the conference is the social license for developing renewable projects was a discussion. And discussion that NIMBYism may be growing in Canada and making it harder to build these projects, despite the fact they're clean and green, people don't want them in their backyard. What are some of the concerns that communities, including Indigenous communities, have with these types of generation? I think the first thing I'd just say, though, to offer you some context of this is I do think that um, for all large infrastructure projects, we're seeing increased concern. <laughs> so wind and solar is not exempt from that, but it's also not unique to wind and solar in that regard. And so I think the real challenge for the industry in that scenario is to ensure that you've got meaningful, effective, and consistent engagement with communities, that you're listening to the concerns of communities that come forward, not just listening, but actually responding to those concerns. I mean, at the end of the day, communities want to ensure that their perspective is heard, that their needs are considered and addressed, and they would like to benefit, obviously, from these projects as well, in both social, environmental, and, and economic ways. So at the end of the day, I think this is where industry has a tremendous responsibility to ensure we do this right. When we're talking about expanding wind and solar energy capacity tenfold over the next 30 years, 
that's going to mean a lot more communities have opportunities, but it means a lot more communities have to be worked with, have to become partners in this exercise to enable success. At the end of the day, you're never going to get unanimous support in a community for any sort of initiative or project. But if you don't have a strong base of support within a community, you can't have a successful project at the end of the day. And, you know, again, I think that's really incumbent on industry to be leading. Now, what we're in the fortunate situation of being in is that there are also a growing number of communities that are actively seeking these projects, perhaps as an economic development opportunity, which is the case in many Indigenous communities, for example, perhaps as an opportunity to meet municipal or community-based climate or greenhouse gas commitments. We're seeing that increasingly as well. So I actually think we're on the cusp of a situation where we have a tremendous opportunity to create a whole range of new partnerships going forward between the developers of these projects and the communities that host them. And it's that type of partnership, I think, that will ultimately lead to success. You know, Jackie and I get a lot of comments and questions that come into our inboxes. I think one of the more frequent ones is, well, what's going to happen when everybody plugs in an electric vehicle? And what's going to happen with all this electrification? Can the grid handle it? And so on and so forth. And so you're talking about on the front end, whatever it is, eight or tenfold increase in generating capacity. And then we've got all this electric vehicle and other electrical appliance on the back end, the consuming end. And so what about all the stuff in between? Tell us about the conversations you're having about reinforcing existing electricity systems or actually expanding them? Because it's got to grow in tandem, right? Oh, absolutely. And I would actually argue that in many ways, the transition to the electricity system of 2050 from where we are today is less a technology question and more a sort of market and regulatory question. We have market and regulatory frameworks that were built and designed for an electricity system that will no longer exist in 2050. The electricity system of today and the past is large generating stations shipping electricity over transmission wires to a load. Increasingly, we're moving towards a scenario where we're going to have a two-way exchange of electricity. You're going to have large generating stations, so you're going to have behind-the-meter distributed energy resources also. You're going to have a lot more communication and interaction through smart grid and AI technologies. And what's really fascinating, actually, is that, unfortunate in a lot of ways, is just at the same time as we're going to have to undertake this really significant transition, we're also looking at a world where we're seeing a whole bunch of new disruptive technologies emerging that give us more options to manage this transition going forward. And that will help us ultimately to do this more efficiently and at lower cost. So, for example, when we think about we're going to double the size of electricity production in Canada, we are going to need more transmission. And transmission is expensive. It's hard to get built. It takes a long time to get built. So what do we want to do? We want to make sure that we're using our existing transmission as efficiently as possible. And right now, our transmission system is built to ensure that we can provide enough power at the peak, which means that most of the time, we're actually underutilizing that infrastructure. Can we reduce the peak through non-wires alternatives, through distributed energy resources or energy storage, in such a way that we can make more efficient and more effective use of that existing transmission and thereby defer or delay the need to build new transmission and help to reduce those costs? 
this sort of explosion is of new technologies is going to provide system operators with tremendous new opportunities to more effectively manage the electricity system at lower cost. So, Robert, I totally agree with you that uh, the market and regulatory framework isn't working. We heard at the conference that, you know, the provinces control their power systems and Canada's power system is described as 10 isolated islands. And that vision you talk about is a much more open and integrated system. Now, I know the Liberals also talked about in their election platform having a council to look at a Canadian east-west transmission grid and maybe look at how we can open up the market some more. Do you think that that's going to happen? And do you think, considering that the federal government doesn't really control the provincial utilities, that it can be effective? It's true that we have 10 different electricity systems. Everyone within each province is working very hard to optimize their electricity system. And what that ensures is that on a national basis, we're suboptimal because we don't take advantage of opportunities for collaboration and coordination. So, yes, the Grid Council, I see as an important opportunity to facilitate dialogue, common planning, exploration of options for collaboration. None of this can be forced. This is going to be up to the provinces to do it. But I do think that if we all agreed that net zero by 2050 is where we're going, we're all going to have a common interest in doing that at the least cost. And there's more than enough evidence that shows that better integration of our electricity grids across the country will help to reduce those costs. And I don't think we're going to have a massive east-west grid. We're more likely to have regionally-based grids to be able to enable that and help facilitate that. But I think there's going to be a very strong economic imperative to look at those sorts of opportunities for more collaboration in both infrastructure planning and use going forward. There's a lot of politics in that provincial and regional politics. Do you think we can get over them? It's almost a truism that we need more collaboration if we're going to achieve electrification on a national scale between our grids and utilities and what have you. I mean, how realistic is that in the near term to get some more momentum behind it? I would agree that we don't have a great historic track record in this regard. However, we do see some promising examples, I think particularly in Atlantic Canada, where there's a lot of discussion around this Atlantic loop concept, but more generally in terms of regional collaboration, cooperation. We see a lot of discussion right now between Saskatchewan and Manitoba in terms of how they can better integrate their grids to facilitate greenhouse gas emission reduction objectives. And at the end, you're right, there is a lot of politics involved. There are different market structures in different provinces. There are real complications to this. But the thing that gives me hope that maybe we can overcome some of those barriers a little more efficiently and effectively than we have in the past is, as I said before, everyone's going to have an interest in reducing costs. And at the end of the day, if we can go to ratepayers in province X and say, through this enhanced collaboration, this will have a real impact on your bill compared to if we did this on our own. That's the argument I hope will drive further collaboration. All right, well, let's switch topics to green hydrogen. You go to a renewable conference, you don't expect to hear so much about green hydrogen, but that was a frequent discussion, basically as a way to store renewable electricity. I mean, the, the holy grail for renewables is to become like baseload because you either have battery storage or some form of storage combined with the intermittent um, renewable generation. But green hydrogen is also being viewed as a way to store energy and also maybe to provide 
energy to industrial processes that aren't easily electrified. How far away do you think green hydrogen is? Like, I was surprised, actually, because I view it as further away, that there was a fair amount of discussion on it. Well, you've already got pilot projects being built. Smaller ones in Canada, you have some large pilot projects being built, for example, in Europe, using offshore wind to produce green hydrogen at this point to serve a variety of markets. I mean, it's going to come down to economics at the end of the day. Right now, green hydrogen is not cost-competitive with other forms of hydrogen production. However, there seems to be a growing view that by the time you get into the 2030s, green hydrogen is going to be cost-competitive. And at that point, it will be interesting to see where markets go, because I believe quite sincerely that there will be a drive from consumers to use the lowest carbon-intensive hydrogen that they can ultimately. And so in Canada, we've taken an approach that we're looking to develop hydrogen using various feedstocks going forward, which makes a lot of sense. But I think by the time we get out to 2050, the share of hydrogen that's going to be growing is green hydrogen, because I think that's what people are going to be looking towards. So we just need to make sure that we're engaged in that discussion as well and moving forward and positioning ourselves to be a player in that market also going forward. Although there's a lot of technologies that are developing quickly and over the course of the next 10, 20 years, yeah, green hydrogen is likely to get better, but other storage technologies are going to improve as well. So it's going to be very interesting to watch the competitive landscape because it's not a foregone conclusion that green hydrogen and hydrogen storage is going to be the way to store electricity as the default. But, you know, that's a whole other separate conversation. What I want to get back to is We talked about social license earlier on to build wind and solar, but there's also now some increasing talk about sustainability and recycling of solar panels, the uh, blades of the wind turbines and so on, and piling up in landfills. So can you talk about what's being done to create more of a circular economy with these wind and solar technologies? Absolutely. And it's something that the industry is very aware of. And frankly, if it's an issue that's not addressed, it's hard to imagine industry growing to the extent that we envision in our vision document. It hasn't been as active a discussion, frankly, in Canada to this point, because our wind and solar facilities are not as old and therefore still have some years left before we see significant amounts of them moving to either decommissioning or repowering. In Europe, however, we're already at that stage. And so you have seen some significant commitments made just in the last two, three years. Wind turbine manufacturers now developing fully recyclable blades going forward. On a solar panel, we can already recycle 90 to 95% of the components, but we have to figure out how we're going to do that last 5% as well. And so It's very much an issue that's alive. And as you said, it is actually tied to the social license in the end. Because if you can't demonstrate that you can take that sort of cradle-to-grave approach in terms of these technologies going forward, there will be people who stand up and say, well, we shouldn't be growing those technologies at that rate. So I'd say it's very much a priority for the industry and increasing focus. Definitely heard a lot about it at the conference, a lot more than I expected. I want to just quickly ask you before we're getting close to wrap-up time here, but... uh, Your document talked about almost 800 megawatts of new wind and solar energy generation in Alberta. And you had talked about the fact that we need other provinces to also start adding more capacity. Do you expect that you're going to see more of the markets that are a little bit more closed open up to renewables and private investment? Yeah, I I think in a number of ways. It ties into 
this question of demand and where that demand is allowed to come from. So in Quebec, which I would argue is the province that probably is furthest ahead in thinking about electrification and having concrete measures in place to encourage electrification, they are issuing a 300 megawatt RFP this fall for wind energy to start to meet that demand. And they've signaled this will be the first of a series of RFPs, 1,400 megawatts, that they're going to be procuring to help them meet the increased electricity demand associated with electrification. So they're already moving forward in that regard. In Nova Scotia, we see the province implementing something called the Green Choice Program, which is going to allow those large consumers, industrial consumers who want to purchase renewable energy to meet their needs, to actually participate or have an RFP run essentially for them (laughs) that will identify that power at the lowest cost that they can then sign on to and take advantage of. Saskatchewan is moving forward with a couple of programs, or they hope to this fall. I believe that their board is looking at this fall, SAS Power is looking at a couple of new programs, again, responding to industrial demand in the province saying, we would like to have the opportunity to procure renewable energy resources for either cost reasons or greenhouse gas reasons. So we're starting to see that emerge in Ontario. We're going to be entering within three, four years, the situation where as nuclear plants are refurbished, there's going to be a need for new generation coming forward. And so now discussions and starting in Ontario in terms of, okay, How are we going to procure that power? And again, I'm very confident that any time you're looking to procure new power, you're going to be looking pretty seriously at wind and solar just because of the cost. And so again, as these opportunities emerge in response to electrification or corporate demand, or in Ontario's case, a shift in existing power generation, we're quite confident that those opportunities for wind and solar will be coming forward. Yeah, so lots of change going on. Well, Robert, we really enjoyed the conversation with you. One last question. Do you plan to host the conference next year? Yes, we will. It will be held in Toronto in October 2022 and uh, encourage anyone and everyone to attend. Definitely lots of exciting discussions and uh, lots of talk about growth, which is always fun. And I really actually enjoyed the exhibit as well. You said there was 100 companies there. That was, was a lot of fun. So with that, I think we'll wrap up. Thank you so much for joining the podcast. Yeah, thanks very much. Thank you very much. Appreciate the opportunity. And thank you to our listeners. If you enjoyed this podcast, please rate us on the app that you listen to and tell someone else about us. For more ideas and insights, visit arcenergyinstitute.com.